Recovery Elevator, episode 145. Just this huge relief that, oh, there are other people like me, I, I guess, and, and I embraced uh, variety fully at that point. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sub-variety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,167 days. On today's podcast, we've got Neil. He's been sober since January 16th, 2016. I first met Neil at the Seattle meetup in February of 2016, where at the time of that meetup, he had just 45 days of sobriety. Before that, he had 18 years. It's a fantastic interview, and find out why Neil drank after 18 years of sobriety. Join us in Dallas, Texas on Saturday, January 20th at the Residence Inn Marriott. I'm going to be speaking for a little bit at this event, and then we're going to have some fun. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas to register for this event. It's going to be a blast. Where are they now? Well, I love hearing success stories. Trisha, who I interviewed in episode 100, just hit one year of sobriety. Congratulations, Trisha, down there in Dallas, Texas. You're a freaking rock star. Nice job. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys today about four strategies that I use to make it through any social event. If you decide to get sober and are going to be successful at it, you can't hide social events for your entire life. I constantly preach that quitting drinking is an opportunity and not a sacrifice and constantly staying in and watching 16 candles instead of going to a wedding, a party, a reunion, etc. That's not an opportunity. That's a sacrifice. So how do we make it through these social events? So let's first start off by saying alcohol is everywhere. It's at dinner parties, at weddings, at birthdays, at restaurants, now Target, and probably 99% of all boats. However, after the interview, I'm going to tell you where alcohol isn't. So alcohol is everywhere, especially on cruises. I recently went on a cruise with my family in the Caribbean. We hit up like four or five of those beautiful islands. It was incredible. However, my unconscious mind took a beating on this cruise. I'm going to be straight up honest with you guys. My unconscious mind took a beating. After about 30 hours on this boat, I started looking at pina coladas with a twist in my eye. I'd say, hmm, that looks nice. And these cruise ships, they know where the upsells are. They know exactly what they're doing. And this booze flows freely. It's not free. Again, tremendous opportunity. I saved probably four or $500 by not drinking on this cruise. But the unconscious mind can take a beating on these events. And that is exactly why willpower alone won't get you through social events. It might get you through one dinner party, two, three, a wedding, this and that. But for a long, sustained, perpetual period of time, willpower does not work because the unconscious mind takes a beating whether you know it or not. Now, the unconscious mind reacts a third of a second faster than the conscious mind. And if I had been offered one more freaking sea breeze on that boat, who knows? But I was able to turn them down successfully with these four strategies. First one is starts with A, ends with accountability. Yeah, you got it. Accountability. That started with my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, my nephew. Without that accountability from people who I was surrounded by most, I didn't stand much of a shot for a full seven days on this boat cool thing about cruises is it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there's still internet. So I was able to check in with Cafe RE, text, email, etc., connect with other like-minded individuals. Also, on a lot of these big boats, there are AA meetings. I went to two of them. However, I was the only one who showed up. 
But it's pretty cool that there was an announcement on a bulletin board that said, Friends of Bill and Bob, meet in the library at 5 p.m. The next strategy that I used to stay sober during this cruise and all social events is I play the tape forward. What that means is the instant I get a craving or a thought, hmm, a Corona would be nice, I start to play the tape forward in my mind. Will I have just one beer? Well, has that ever happened? No. You've lost that battle 99 out of 100 times. Will I be able to shut it down after two or three beers, wake up tomorrow morning and be refreshed to enjoy the rest of the vacation? That's a definite hell no. I play the tape forward and then subjectively ask myself, well, Paul, how does that scenario sound? You're blacked out, you're drunk, there's a good chance you're going to end up overboard. Hmm? Appealing? And that answer is always no. The next strategy, which was difficult to implement on a cruise, is always have an exit strategy. I highly recommend you don't be the DD, especially in early sobriety. Yeah, it's cool you're not drinking, and feel free to offer rides up to your friends. Maybe go pick them up when they're too drunk to drive home, but this can't be something that jeopardizes your sobriety. I've been the DD before, and I've got stuck at parties where it's 11 p.m., midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and I'm ready to bounce, get the hell out of there, but the people that I drove there, they're still partying. They don't want to leave yet. Make sure you drive, you have an exit strategy, you can get the hell out of there. And even though I was on a cruise, my exit strategy was accountability and being open and transparent with my family and them knowing, look, if I left dinner immediately and said, hey guys, I need to go spend some time just on my own, they would understand and they would support that decision. So whether it's your own car, Uber, taxi, zipline, whatever, make sure you have an exit strategy. And the fourth strategy that I use to make it through social events is contemplative. I stop and I think. I look around and I think about what alcohol really is. Alcohol is a poison. And it's pretty much common sense. If you drink enough alcohol in one sitting, you'll die. It's just a matter of how much you drink. It's straight up a poison. Alcohol is total shit. Alcohol is shit. Alcohol is shit. Alcohol is shit. I stop and I think about this. So I sit there at the social event and I look around and I can see alcohol for what it really is. It is a poison that doesn't relax us. It slows down our faculties. I don't want that. I want to be alive and upbeat at the party. Screw alcohol. Alcohol is shit. Now, a strategy in early sobriety would entail just avoiding social situations. I don't recommend going to a bachelor party, bachelorette party, a wedding, or any major social event within your first 30, 60, 90 days. It's just not safe. There's a lot at stake. However, you can't avoid social events for the rest of your life because then you're going to be tapping into the willpower muscle, and we've done about 30 episodes on that. It just doesn't work. Now, this podcast comes out on Monday, November 27th. There was a large social event just a couple days ago called Thanksgiving. If you made it through sober, congratulations, nice job. If you didn't, do me a solid right now. Don't beat yourself up. Today is a new Monday, a new day. Get right back on it, and we can do this. Okay, before we hear from Neil, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years, and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. 
For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Hey, Neil. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Neil, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I got sober at 116 of 16, so what? 20 months or something like that. Yeah, nice job, and I'll fill in the blank. Got sober 116.16 this time around. Neil initially got sober in 1990 and was sober for 18 years. And Neil and I met in person about a month and a half after his sobriety date at the Seattle meetup. And he reached out to me when he had a little over a year and was like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do this and let's do the interview. And I'm excited to get you back on the podcast with before. We get into that stuff, Neil. Give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and you know, what do you like to do for fun, Neil? I'm in my late 50s. I have uh, two boys who have two little girls uh, that are like six months apart and then two years old. And I, I do maintenance work for a university in Seattle. And I like to go camping and spending time with my my wife and our, the one grandbaby that lives with us. 50 years old, Grandpa Neil, congratulations. That is awesome. I'm sure it's nice to be able to be sober, present in a moment with those beautiful grandkids of yours. So let's back it up a little bit, Neil. When did you first realize that potentially you might have a drinking problem? And I'm pretty sure it's well before 1990. Yeah, probably when my dad had died because he, he died as a he died alone and, and drunk and, and whatnot. And looking out over the over the valley of the little town where where we lived in as children, realizing that, that, you know, that's not the way I wanted to go. So that would have been 1986, and it took another four years, I guess, before it actually sank in. So what types of indicators did you have that you, you so four years from 1986 to 1990, I imagine you try to put some rules in the place, like, all right, I'm not dying drunk, I'm not going to die alone. So I'm only going to drink Budweiser. I'm not doing the hard stuff, or I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Did you put any rules like that in a place? Yeah, when I drank the hard stuff, I had a tendency to uh, get out of control. Uh, out of control was in violence, out of control. And, yeah, and, and then, I, you know, the standard stuff. I, I'm only going to drink two beers tonight, and it wind up being 12 or it Oh, I'm only going to drink on Saturday, but I, I could stay sober through the weekend. But by Tuesday, I, I'd be going. Oh, I'm going to drink, and I, I'd be, you know, hung over every day, every day for the rest of the week and whatnot. So it just took a long time to before I realized it, and that was when my first wife kicked me out, woke me up after a drunk, and said, um, "I think it's time that you leave." And I, I left and humiliated with the and demoralized and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, humiliated and demoralized alcohol is a good job of making us feel those acute emotions. Now, in 1990, was that the impetus? Was the, your wife leaving you what got you sober in 1990? Yes, it was. And I, I, was, I was driving taxi in Seattle, and 
Seattle at that time, and unbeknownst to me, the World Convention came to Seattle, and my actual first meeting was the uh, closing ceremony of the World Convention. You're talking the AA um, World Convention, right? Yes, the AA World Convention. And sitting sitting in the kingdom at that time, it's, uh, I, I I realized that I had found what I'd been looking for about, I don't know, just this huge relief that, oh, there are other people like me, I, I guess. And, and I embraced uh, variety fully at that point. So what was that feeling like? Expand more on that relief that you felt when you realized that you weren't alone and you said, hey, there are more other people out there like me. What was that like? It was just a huge emotional relief. And I I, I really don't remember a lot about the, the closing ceremonies except for the uh, Amazing Grace song at the end. And the, I pretty much bawled but cried throughout that whole event. I was with these two other sober people, a sponsor and his sponsee from the East Coast. And, I mean, we, we did a lot of tremendous things on that day, showing them the sights and everything. And it was just, it was a, a connectivity that, that just seemed to, like, really happen at, at that point. That is so cool. And, you know, who also cried was the city of Seattle when the Supersonics left the kingdom. But that's a, it's another topic entirely. So what was it like? You got sober in 1990. What was it like the first year, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, up to 15 years? <laughs> I fully embraced AA and, and got involved in meetings in the early days. It was advanced. I didn't really have a job and I was looking for a job. I went to two or three meetings a day for a few months and then found a job and just worked my way up and and then got involved in another relationship and had two children and helped found a meeting and became a GSR and, and I mean, fully embraced it. And then, I, as I say, as I call it, life, life, family, and everything else started to edge into AA. And probably, probably about after seven years, I forgot, as I would say, that about the benefits of what AA was, and, and I didn't go to any more meetings after that. So, But for the first seven uh, years, I heard you mention you fully embraced it. You helped start a meeting. You were a GSR. You dove into AA, and I, I think you, know, you were involved in a community, and can you attribute that to at least getting seven years of sobriety? And I'd be thankful if I got seven years of sobriety. So nice job on that. Yeah, and in reflecting back, it's like you embrace the sobriety and and everything, and then and then over a period of time, you just kind of live normal, like a normie, so to speak. But and I forgot that I wasn't that I wasn't normal. Anyway, so does it sound like from years seven to eighteen, you forgot that <laughs> you were not normal in regards of drinking alcohol and every other aspect? We are just completely normal human beings, but when it comes to drinking ethanol or poison. We don't react very well to that. So from year 7 to 18, would you say you were somewhat of a dry drunk? Did you just get displaced from AA a little bit? Yeah, as, as I reflect back on, on that, that's, that's exactly the, the position I was in at that. As life, as life happened and, and things happened and the pressures happened of a lot of things, yeah, I was, I was on a dry drunk, and then I just had the, you know, efforts 
and had a drink. It was just, yeah, I re-drank. It was just over 18 years of uh, sobriety. Yeah, let's back it up to 2008 when you took that drink after 18 years of sobriety. I've said on this podcast many times that a relapse happens way before that first drink. And can you walk us through that? And was that a similar experience through, for you? Yeah, the pressures. And, and there there were times that my, my wife would call and she's like, is there anything you want from the store? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I say, bring me a sixer of uh, MGD, you know. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that because that was my fear of choice. And one day she kind of said, okay, and brought it home. And I cracked that pop and I I just, I, I drank. I was like, and I was like, whoa, this is what I've been missing. And I wasn't really off to the races at that point in time, but it didn't take very very much longer to have that, to get into that racetrack again. Now give us a time duration of, you say, it didn't take very much longer. Are we talking like a year here? Or how long did it take to ramp back up? Probably about six months. I was sober for I didn't drink again for probably about three months or whatever and then started drinking and you know one or two beers here or there and and the time between them got shorter and shorter and then it was like every night and I can remember when the wife found out that I was uh, that I was uh, drinking on a regular basis again and and she called me crying because she'd found the alcohol in the in the truck and yeah, I, I felt I felt really bad, but she kind of seemed to accept it, and so that's where my drinking went to. I I drink six pack to twelve pack a night every night, seven seven nights a week. For seven years, right? Yeah, towards the end, it, it was even worse. I was probably drinking the fifth a day. I I'd taken uh, on my commute from work to home I'd uh, I'd stop by the same liquor store go in buy a new bottle a, a new fifth of uh, whiskey and pour it into my water bottle and go home and drink throughout the throughout the night until I passed out and and then I unfortunately I, I would have a few nips on the way to work and so just I don't know just to feel what no, I you, felt you don't got to explain it, Neil. I, I, we, we all get it. And then, uh, you know, then insert Groundhog Day over and over and over again, which is exhausting. And, and Neil, I want to back it up just a little bit here. You know, when you asked your wife, um, you know, hey, hey, sweetie, I'll take an MGD. She's like, no, nope, not happening. Like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, sweetie. I was, I was just joking. And then one day, you know, you, your, your wife's like, yeah, okay, I'll, sure. You, you've asked me enough times. I'll get it. You know, what do you think it finally was? Was it something that happened? You mentioned the stresses of life, or was it the unconscious mind can take a beating if, if you're away from a program, away from a community? I'm talking unconscious mind takes a beating, but just seeing driving home, seeing an alcohol ad, seeing alcohol on TV, repeat that a thousand times. And the unconscious mind, um, you, you know, will, will start to chirp in unhealthy ways. So what was it, in your opinion, do you think led to that relapse after 18 years of sobriety? Well, there were a lot of outside pressures, and, and Bill, in the big book, in the first time, kind of talks about other other addictions that manifest themselves after you get get sober, you know, whether it's the chain smoking or the, or the endless drinking of coffee or whether it's... 
really go into it really strong, but it, but he goes into it. And there were other addictions that over the years had manifested themselves, and, and not so much in myself, but in my wife and the relationship. And so there was a lot of lying and deceit and stuff going on. And it was those pressures that finally broke me. Sure. And those all seem like coping mechanisms. And I've mentioned that a lot of us, we alcoholics, we have poor coping mechanisms when we first get sober. And, and would you agree with that statement? Did you feel like maybe you didn't have the proper coping mechanisms in place after 18 years? Or was it just you just weren't working a program? It was the bad coping mechanisms. And yes, it was also not working the program. And, and like I said already, I, I've done reflection on that. They just recently over the past few weeks, you know, kind of gone, God, you know, if, if I only would have continued the meetings and staying in AA and, and whatnot, even though these other addictions were rearing their ugly heads and stuff, I feel that I, I might have, who knows, because it, it didn't happen, but that I would have been able to not go out and, and re-drink after 18 years. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Hindsight sometimes is not twenty twenty. You just don't know, and it's all speculative. And the reason why I'm kind of beating a dead horse here talking about this 18 years of sobriety is, you know, I get emails from people who graduate from Cafe RE. Actually, those are great emails to get when people say, hey, I'm looking for more long-term sobriety. I need to cancel my Cafe RE subscription. That's great. But, um, you know, I get emails saying, hey, Paul, I've been sober for seven months. Cafe RE has been great, but I think I got this. I'm good. And you've heard me say on this podcast, like the three most dangerous words an alcoholic can say is, I got this. And just comment on that. You know, when you say, I got this, usually when I've said that in the past, a relapse has been looming. Did you find yourself saying the words, I got this within somewhere in those 18 years of sobriety and more specifically towards the tail end? No, no, I, I, I didn't. I, like I said, I pretty much really forgot all about the, the drinking aspect of it and just, I just forgot about it. I, I, and I never, you know, after, after a long period of time, you, you just kind of go, okay, I, I don't drink, no big deal, you know, and you can walk down those aisles in the in the supermarket or, or drive by and, and not even take and think about that stuff. So I didn't have that. But in my second stint at, at, at recovery, yeah, there there were there were lots of times there where you know it's like it's like oh I got this I got this I got this and and no I I didn't get it my my HR department decided that that they liked me better sober than than intoxicated so <laughs> smart HR department yeah so I they they sent me to treatment or they helped me find a a facility to to enjoy some evenings at. <laughs> And whatnot, and I figured out quickly. Oh well, if the last class is on Thursday night, and if I drink Thursday night, then by the time Monday rolls around, if I get UA, then uh, I'll be good. But I, I, I got into that. I got this thing, but then I got into the planning of the next drink. And I've said before on this podcast, I know I have another drink in me. I don't know if I have another recovery in me. And you went out in 2008, came back in in 2016. I mean, that's, I mean, that's eight years, seven and a half, seven and a half years of, of drinking. Did you try to get back into recovery at any moment during that? Or was it like 1-16-16? You're like, okay, I'm coming back. Yeah, I, 
after I started drinking and after a couple of years and seeing the progression of, of the amount of alcohol I was I was drinking and whatnot, yeah, I, I, I went to AA meetings. I would go to AA meetings half drunk and sit there, and but I, I lost that connection of, of what sobered me the first time. And I knew that I need the the reason or the whatever of the first time I got sober wasn't going to work, and I needed a, a new a new finding. I, I had to find a new reason to stay sober, and and it, it, nothing nothing was working. I going to the AA meetings wasn't working, getting uh, testing positive on a UA and and being prescribed and abuse uh, didn't even keep me sober either. I, but Eventually, eventually, I did. I did find a new reason to to get sober, and I, I think that's that's the joy of of this. So, curiosity is killing a cat here. What was that reason? <laughs> so, I had to go on an abuse in like November of of twenty fifteen because I had a positive test of uh, alcohol, and. So every day I'd have to go to the pharmacy and and take the little white pill and and then go home and I had to have a piece of paper signed you know every day by the by by the pharmacist I mean they had to give me the pill and so I'm coming up at the end of that in February and I'm already my wife's leaving town and she's going to be gone for a week because of family issues and and whatnot and and I'm like going okay my last pills on on a Tuesday and I'm going to be able to like she's going to be gone on Friday so four days five days and and I'll be able to take and drink over the weekend without having these these feelings after after I tell you after I drink of of the the red face and the puking and and whatnot I and abuse and alcohol really do not mix and for listeners, antabuse is something like naltrexone, right? Something that creates unfavorable it's, uh, it's symptoms. Called, it's called disulfum or something like that. And, and yes, it, it creates a physical reaction to, to alcohol, which is not which is not good. That wasn't fun. Well, I went to a, I went to a night meeting at um, at a group that I normally went to, and it was a twelve by twelve study, and and it was chapter seven of, of the twelve by twelve, and we're going through there, and it was step seven, and we're going through there, going through there, and and I'm already planning out as I'm going to drink. I am it, there. There is no doubt in my mind, and there there was no doubt up to up to the point. At the top of page uh, 74, it's talking about it's talking about uh, sobriety, and it, and it says you must find a will or fall by the wayside. And we finished we finished reading that chapter, and I went back to that because there's always discussion after you read, and, and, and that was like that light bulb that that bright shining light the the bill the, the bill got and it's like you must find a will or fall by the wayside and at that moment the the planning and the scheming and the and the thoughts of next drink and, and wanting it and, and and actually going going through it I, was gone boom I, I, the snap of the fingers the thunder or whatever I, it, it was gone and and that that obsession was was lifted from me at that at that moment 
and I have not I have not had um, the desire to take a drink to take a drink since then. So in episode 52, I talk about 12 value bombs that I've learned thus up to the, that point in podcasting. And one of them is called a conduit that a conduit can show up at any moment. And that's, we need to step through that conduit in, in order to get sober and you reach the higher power. We can't do this by ourselves and the higher power can be whatever the hell you want it to be. And it sounds like you just had the obsession lifted, which I also experienced when I walked through my conduit around September 7th and said, you know what? I'm done for good taking it one day at a time but yeah that's it's an amazing experience and, and and talk to me about your higher power has that been something that you've tapped into to get sober yeah i reflect on that and i ask god higher power whatever you want to want to call him you know i really embracing the 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 concepts of the of the steps of uh, step 10 and, and 11 and and whatnot about about reflecting on on your day before and your day and your next day and and when you get into situations asking you know god god for for help to guide you to give you the answer the wisdom the the whatever the knowledge to to be able to deal with that and and go forward and and yeah it's it's important to me today more so than it was when i was out drinking absolutely and, and neil with almost 20 years of sobriety logged do you still get cravings and if you do get them what do you do i i don't get any cravings like i said what, on that day when i read that the obsession the desire the want the, the cravings I, it's it's all it was lifted it, it's gone i haven't had anything since since that day now with Neil 2.0, you're on your second time around, almost 18 months of sobriety. You know what are some rules that you live by? Just to try and remain calm. I mean, I, I, I just really try and step back and and take a deep breath that when issues and situations arise that could easily get out of control, and and try to reflect on how they affect me personally and emotionally, and try to try to go well that's not my problem that's you know your problem or somebody else's problem or or it's not my issue so i i just try to stay out of that that stuff oh the gravity problems and the control issues it's so nice when you can recognize and say you know what this is a gravity problem that i just need to say oh well i have no control over the outcome that's a big thing that i focused on after the retreat in 2000 and uh, 17 this past august now let's chat about the recovery elevator retreat we're on the 34th or 35th floor of the insignia tower in downtown seattle i think there's probably 25 of us there in that room we're on in comfortable couches and it was an emotional moment for you neil i think you had just a couple weeks or, or no, maybe a month and a half of sobriety at that moment you know explain what your thoughts and what you're feeling at that moment I was really feeling really uncomfortable, and and um, <laughs> that's a uh, common response. <laughs> <laughs> and because it was a different situation than than any, I mean, it was really a unique and scary position to be in. And you were asking questions, and and you came around, and and you got to me, and and I think I remember. Is it, is it, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? You know, and and uh and i i really got choked up about that or something and and i said well 
you know, that that's when you have that fist by the bedside and you got to drink off of it, you know, throughout the course of the night to take and sleep. And I, I don't know, I got really emotional. And you wanted me to tell my story. And I'm like thinking, no, I, we, we ain't got to, uh, we don't have enough time for, for this, you know. <laughs> yeah. because, no, because I remember it, now, it, it, Neil, it, we, it, we went around and I said, you know, give us a, your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. And a lot of them were kind of funny. And then it got to you, and it was like this this value bomb, or not value bomb, but like yeah, it was like wow, we need to we need to pause here because a lot to learn from what you said. But you're right, like we didn't have time to share the story, nor were you really prepared to tell it at that moment because it hadn't quite unfolded. Um, sorry, I interrupted you a little bit there. Keep going, Neil. And I mean, you asked, and I'm like, I, yeah, I, I'm all choked up. I'm like, no, I I can't, you know, I, and and I thought at some point in time that that in the future at that point that maybe we could, you know, have conversation when I got more emotionally stable to be able to take and talk about it without. Um, yeah. And, and Neil, me. this story kind of has a happy ending because at this moment in the future is right now. And you said, you know, we, we chatted via Facebook a little bit after that. And you said, yeah, when I get more sobriety, you know, if I get more sobriety, nothing was in the bag at that moment. And here we are right now. I just got to give you props. You're here with 18 months, 16 months of sobriety. It's freaking awesome. Nice job. And, Neil, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Number one, Neil, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, I was at a former employer's business, and my wife, I asked her to come down to give me a ride home, and she had brought somebody else, and I, I, I just flew off the handle, and I'm out there yelling and screaming and, and, and whatnot, and, and some of the neighbors, this is in a business, stuff, but there's neighbors, and, and they called the cops, and the cops showed up, and I wouldn't come out, and they couldn't come in, and this and that, and eventually they, they left, and then I finally came out, but I was, yeah, that was scary. The old Jack Daniels standoff textbook. Next question, Neil. <laughs> We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating, oh no, I can't control this drinking thing? Yeah, it was the, it was the last week of my my drinking. I actually stayed in bed. I called in sick every every day, and I every every time I took a pull off the bottle or or took a drink of alcohol, I, I was like, oh. I, I can't do this, and and I was that was my that was my last drunk because the wife was coming back after a three month jaunt across the United States with her parents. So yeah, sure. And Neil, what's it. your plan in sobriety moving forward? To keep connected with AA and and keep keep going on and enjoy my uh, my two grandchildren and and the joys of, of that that part of life and to work on, keep working on the relationship with the with the wife and neil with almost 20 years logged of recovery or sober time what's your favorite resource in recovery i have to say podcast because in my work I, I i work alone a lot and i mean i listen to just tens of hundreds of hours of of podcasts and now I finally got enough podcasts where I can I kind of fall them behind, but there are podcasts that I, I keep up on yours and Omar's the the Share podcast and, and Recovered podcast and and there's a Boiled Out podcast and I mean I, there's there's the Way Out podcast. I 
the list just keeps it can go on and on and on and and i i listen to that stuff and it, and it keeps me it really keeps me connected and and relational that that i am not an island in this the search for sobriety or or life or whatever no and the list goes on and on it seems like every time i go to itunes there's another recovery podcast which is awesome because when i first started there was just a small handful and there should be more there should be hundreds of them so it's pretty cool and podcasts you can do while folding clothes you can do while walking the dog and do everything it's, it's i love podcasts too i lost i listen to a bunch of them as well next question neil in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received go to a meeting go go to meetings stay connected the next question, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or are already doing it? Just one day at a time. I mean, really, it's it's all about one, one day at a time. I love it. And, Neil, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you at the Recovery Elevator Meetup in February 2016. Give us your own customized you-might-be-an-alcoholic gift line. It's going to be the same thing I said when I was there. You know, you might be an alcoholic if when you're – opening that that bottle to take a to take a swig at one two three four five o'clock in the morning just so you can get you know another 45 minutes or an hour's worth of sleep yep i was there espana spain that time of my life it was tough it sucks it's exhausting so neil 2.0 you're on a better side of it and um, i hope i can find those footsteps and, and reach you know double digits in years of sobriety i'll be thankful if that happens one day so neil thank you so much for joining us on the recovery elevator podcast have a great day thanks paul i will as i mentioned before alcohol is everywhere however i found a spot where it's not and ironically since alcohol consists mostly of water it's not underwater on this cruise i went scuba diving nope didn't run into any bars promoting specials, two-for-ones, dollar beer night. Didn't find it. I got back to the boat, tried to locate a real estate agent, inquire on prices on the coral reef underwater. And then I really thought about it. Like I said, hey, Paul, that's, that's not going to work. There's a lot of holes in that plan. But it was pretty cool. It was cool. I didn't even think about alcohol while I was scuba diving. In fact, that would be a great hobby to pick up. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.